A reading from Genesis. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, and I will make my covenant between me and you and will make you exceedingly numerous. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, as for me, this is my covenant with you. You shall be the ancestor of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the ancestor of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you, and your offspring after you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to be God to you and to your offspring after you God said to Abraham as for Sarai your wife you shall not call her Sarai but Sarah shall be her name I will bless her and moreover I will give you a son by her I will bless her and she shall give rise to nations kings of peoples shall come from her the word of the Lord. A reading from Romans. For this reason it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his descendants, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to those who share the faith of Abraham. For he is the father of all of us, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead, and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Hoping against hope, he believed that he would become the father of many nations, according to what was said, so numerous shall your descendants be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was already as good as dead, for he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, being fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Therefore, his faith was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now the words, it was reckoned to him, were written not for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be reckoned to us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was handed over to death for our trespasses and was raised for our justification. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Mark. Jesus began to teach his disciples that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed. And after three days rise again, he said all this quite openly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. 
called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of them the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. The Gospel of the Lord. In the wonderful love of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, please be seated. Some of you may have noticed that there is a difference between what you see here and what you see in the bulletin. I am not the Reverend Mike Stone. You can tell the difference because he doesn't have as much gray hair as I do. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, uh, my name is Nick Rowe. I've been a member of this parish for several years, and I am now in my second year studying at the Iona School for Ministry run by the Diocese of Texas. But many years ago, I was in gainful employment. Now I'm retired. But I worked in the textile fibers department of the E.I. DuPont de Nemours Company. At that time, it was the largest textile fiber manufacturer in the world. We made nylon, Dacron polyester, Lycra, Nomex, Kevlar, among many other fibers. And in fact, uh, we had invented most of those. There were something like 40,000 employees all over the world. Most of them were located in the southeast United States. At the time I'm thinking of, the vice president in charge of the textile fibers department came back from an outward bound experience. And he was so excited and so exhilarated uh, that he felt by, by this experience that he felt that all of his employees should go through it. All 40,000 members of the textile fibers department. He meant all, machine operators, mechanics, secretaries, what we called them then, technical staff, engineers, even the chemists, <clears throat> all, and of course all management. Now I heard the vice president say that he did not require everyone to uh, go to these events, but I also heard him say that having this experience was preparing you for the future of the fibers department, and that anyone who wanted to be part of that future should participate. <laughs> Very subtle. But he built three separate facilities at various points in the southeast where employees could share the outward bound experience. And these experiences included climbing a 25-foot pole and jumping off of it, uh, reaching out to ring a bell, uh, climbing a 50-foot wall, and then climbing a 75-foot tower and stepping off of it 
onto a zip line that ran for several hundred feet to the ground. I must tell you that some of the most intense prayer experience in my life <laughs> was standing at the edge of that platform, looking down at my toes, hanging over the edge, and looking down another 75 feet. Somewhere I have a videotape of that event and my flying down the, the zip line, but I haven't looked at it in a long time. But the vice president's idea was that most people are afraid of heights. And that by doing these things, we might not only lose some of our fear of heights, but also begin to realize that we could do things we never thought we could do. I certainly never thought I was gonna jump off of a 75-foot tower. The vice president wanted us to think big, though, to expand our capabilities and recognize that we had much more potential than we thought we did, that we had set limits for ourselves that were not real but imaginary, self-imposed limits. And for many people, he was right. Some people said that experience had changed their lives, showing them that they could do things they never thought they could do. And they began to realize that they had set limits on themselves and on their lives that were not real limits, but limits that were self-imposed by what they thought they could do or what they thought they ought to be able to do, not what they really could do. So how does this story connect with today's gospel? Well, it helps me to begin just four verses before the passage we just read. Let me review that. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they answered him, John the Baptist, and others, Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. And then the key question, but who do you say I am? And Peter answers him, you are the Messiah. And Jesus orders them not to tell anyone about him. And then we begin, so Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. He said this quite openly. But then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Turning and looking, looking at his disciples, Jesus rebukes Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. You can almost hear Jesus snarling, get thee behind me, Satan, as the uh, old King James Version puts it. And so Peter goes from hero to zero in just four verses. In fact, below zero does Satan himself, because the <laughs> word that Jesus uses Rebuke, which we translate rebuke, is exactly the same word in Greek that Jesus uses to rebuke the demons and call them out of people. Now, in my younger days, I could take comfort in this, these passages. Why? Because uh, it was clear that even St. Peter himself could get into trouble and fall flat on his face. But this isn't the only place where Peter falls short. Remember the passage where the disciples are crossing the Sea of Galilee in a boat, and it's a storm, and they see Jesus walking towards them across the water. 
<coughs> excuse me. And some of the disciples say, are afraid because they think this is a ghost. And um, Peter calls out and says, Lord, if it's really you, tell me to walk out on the water to you. And Jesus says to him, okay, come on. And Peter does. He gets out of the boat and starts to walk across the water. But then all of a sudden, Peter realizes that he's doing something that he thought was impossible. And so it becomes impossible. He sinks into the water, and Jesus has to fish the fishermen out of the water. But there are even worse failures in Peter. Remember on the night of the before the crucifixion, Jesus denies Peter denies Jesus three times, ending with, I tell you, I do not know the man. But for some reason, Jesus picks this ex-commercial fisherman with his many flaws, weaknesses, and shortcomings as the rock on whom he builds his church. But God's apparently poor recruiting choices begin much earlier. This morning in our reading from the Old Testament, we hear God making his promise to Abraham, the father of many nations. But in Genesis 12, Abraham goes down to Egypt, turns coward and tells his wife, Sarah, you are so beautiful, I'm afraid they will kill me to be able to marry you, my widow. Let's tell them you're my sister instead of my wife so they won't kill me. So Abraham passes Sarah off as his sister and allows her to be taken into Pharaoh's house and for her sake, Pharaoh deals well with Abraham, gives him sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male and female slaves, female donkeys, and camels. But a series of plagues teaches Pharaoh the error of his ways, and Pharaoh goes to Abram and says, why have you done this to me? Why did you not tell me that Sarah was your wife? And Pharaoh returns Sarah to Abraham. Then later, Abraham uh, is re- uh, visiting Gerar, and Abraham again turns coward, and tells his wife, Sarah, the same thing. Let's tell them that you are my sister and not my wife. And so Sarah is passed off as Abraham's sister. And again, Sarah gets married, this time to the king of Gerar. Uh, But the king has some very bad dreams because of Sarah and returns her her to Abraham as soon as he can. Now, perhaps it is just as well that there is no record of what Sarah thought about all this. But it certainly does not put Abraham in a good light. But somehow God was able to use this deeply flawed man to do his work in the world. And that's not the end of it. Consider Moses, the great lawgiver of Israel, and David, the great king, poet, and singer of Israel. Read your Bibles and you'll find that they too are profoundly flawed people. But again, David is able to use David, God is able to use David and Moses, Abraham, despite their flaws. Now I have a dilemma here. My problem is that God has picked some very flawed people to do his work in the world. Now for me, that's kind of scary because if God could use these people even with their flaws, I cannot hide behind my flaws to say to God, I'm not good enough. 
My flaws and my sins disqualify me from doing God's work in the world. Please do not think that I am standing here because I think I'm any better than anybody else in this room. I am not. I'm here because I have gotten some training in Iona in homiletics, which is a fancy Episcopal word for preaching. Now, whether this training has done any good, I will have to leave it to you to judge. But there it is. For me, the moral of all this is that God does not wait until we are perfect before we can do God's work in the world. God can and does work with all kinds of people, with all kinds of flaws, to do his work in the world. And I think this is what Jesus means when he says, to be my disciple, you must take up your cross and carry it. I don't think he's talking about picking up a piece of wood and carrying it through a jeering crowd to the edge of the city to get nailed to it there. I hear Jesus saying, this world has many needs, both large and small. And God has equipped each of us with gifts or talents to help meet those needs. St. Paul tells us of the variety of God, gifts that God gives to each of us, not the same gifts to each, but to each of us, God gives talents to do God's work in the world. And they're not always the same talents because each of us finds ourselves in a unique place in the world with different circles of family and friends, acquaintances, and even strangers we meet every day at the grocery store or wherever. For many of us, this is the world in which we are called to serve. When we use our gifts to meet the world's needs, we are doing God's work in the world. We are bearing our cross. It does not have to be as painful as getting nailed to a piece of wood. To paraphrase Frederick Buechner, we are doing God's work in the world when our joy meets the world's needs. So where does this leave us? I find myself challenged to look for the places where my skills and talents can meet the needs of the world. Then to look for the limits that I have placed on myself to keep me from fully using the gifts I've been given to do God's work in the world. I invite you to look for those places where your joys meet the world's needs. And do not let yourself be limited by what you think you can do. Instead, do what needs to be done to bring the world closer to God by being God's presence wherever you find yourself in the world and becoming the person God has created you to be. Amen. <clears throat>